This podcast is produced by The Brand is Female. Tanse, hello, and welcome back to the Matriarch Movement Podcast. I'm your host, Shayla Olet Stonechild, and I'm very excited and honored to have not one but two guests here with me today, one being Chelsea Vowell. She is a Métis writer and educator from Lac St. Anne, Alberta, residing in Edmonton currently. She is a Cree language instructor at the Faculty of Native Studies at the University of Alberta and author of Indigenous Rights, A Guide to First Nations, Métis, and Inuit Issues in Canada. She and her co-host Molly Swain produced the Indigenous Feminist Sci-Fi podcast called Métis in Space. And I also have Sandra Lamouche. She is being mentored by Chelsea Vowell. Located in Fort McLeod, Sandra works in fiction and in poetry. She is Nehiao, and she is a wife and a mother and member of the Big Stone Cree Nation. She's a champion hoop dancer, award-winning Indigenous educational leader, and two-time TED speaker. And so here they are actually in a mentorship program for Audible Indigenous Writers Circle. And so we talk about their journey as writers and what it means to decolonize in a very modern-day society. I hope you're inspired by this conversation just like I was. Hi, hi. Have a blessed day, y'all. I'm very excited to have Chelsea here with me today and Sandra. Thank you so much for joining me uh, here today. If you just want to introduce the audience and the listeners uh, to you, where you're from, and some of the work that you do. Thank you. Can't say Sandra Lamouche, Nitsi Gasun, Nia Nihiawasquayo. I'm uh, off reserve member of the Big Stone Cree Nation from Treaty 8 territory. Tansi Chelsea Valnitsigason, Igua Mantusakaiganik, Otsinia, Mara Ewigian Uta, Mesquetsi Waskaiganik, Megwats. So I'm Metis from Lac St. Anne, but living here in Edmonton right now. Awesome. And I, I hear you're both uh, writers and you're both uh, going through a mentorship program with Audible right now. Could you speak a little bit about that and how that journey has begun so far? Because I think you guys started in 20, like the summer 2021, right? Mm-hmm. So how how has that journey been with um, Audible and what is that um, all about? I'll let Sandra go first <laughs> to describe her experiences because <laughs> she, she would have actually encountered the program before I did. Oh, okay. Okay. I believe that I applied. I thought I applied this year. Um, yeah, in the spring or yeah, beginning of spring maybe. And I just saw the advertisement for the uh, Indigenous Writers Circle and to do a mentorship. And so I just wanted to continue to work on my writing. And I thought it like. I had been a part of the Banff Center Indigenous Writers Residency virtually in March. And so I realized how important it was to have mentors and colleagues Mm. and peers to keep you motivated to write. Like writing, it seems like and it sounds like such an individual disconnected kind of job or practice to do to be part of but actually I've been finding it's actually the opposite you need people to Mm. read your stuff to um, bounce ideas off of and to even just to keep you motivated Mm -hmm. and uh, 
So that's why I applied. And I just kept getting these emails like, okay, you made it past this first round. And then you made it past the second <laughs> round. And I was like, um, each time it was like unbelievable. Um, they said they had an overwhelming response to their call. And so, yeah, I'm really grateful just to be selected. That's awesome. And like how I, that's often how I think of writing too, is like, you're usually just by yourself working on a paper, you know, getting tired of your own words. And so having that kinship and that mentorship, I imagine it breathes life into new ways and you get to learn more about yourself on a deeper level. And so for you, Chelsea, how has it been um, being in that mentorship role? Yeah, it's been really interesting. Um, I was first approached about this uh, back in the spring, I think, too. I think after it already opened up, probably. Um, and and I liked the idea of doing something long term because, like, if if you're if you're a writer, um, if you've been published at all, you probably are mentoring other people anyway because people will just come to you and be like, "Hey, I, I mm. saw you in this. Like, how, you know, how does one do that?" Um, I've I've even had people be like, "Hey, my daughter's a writer, and you know, I, I'm really excited to support her work. And mm. you know, where do you even start? You know, things like that." But I wanted something that was a bit more long term, a, a bit more um, structured, so that you know, we could touch base more than more than once. And sort mm -hmm. of, I, I wanted to see writers journeys over that time. And it's been really exciting because every time we meet, I also, I find that it, I, it's, it's really generative. I might be in a funk. I might be super busy. And then I have this meeting. I'm like, Oh God, it's another meeting. And then you have the meeting and it's so cool and so exciting because the projects that people are working on are really, really interesting. And I find that I come out of that just feeling like, all right, I'm, I'm just, now I'm going to write like yeah. it's 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 wonderful. It's not it's not a, a top down thing. I feel very um, enthused and full of uh, energy when when I get to do this stuff. Yeah, that's awesome that these uh, mentorship programs exist now. I know we often probably mm. feel alone. And I want to talk a little or get to know a little bit more about each one of your journeys uh, to becoming a writer. You know, where did that all start? Who were you inspired by growing up? And who are you currently uh, inspired by? Mm. I don't know whoever feels called to go first. <laughs> um. Let me see. Well, okay. So I, I grew up uh, reading, you know, uh, there, there wasn't really much out there uh, written by Indigenous peoples that I could access. Um, you know, there was Half Breed by Maria Campbell. Mm. Um, I read some Thomas King uh, when it came out, and that was really exciting mm -hmm. to, to just have access to that at all. Uh, but, you know, for the most part, what I had access to was written by non-Indigenous peoples mm. about Native people. And at the time, I didn't realize that that was so problematic. Um, I think back, so I was a big, I was really big into fantasy when I was younger. Not such a fan anymore. Uh, I like sci-fi a bit more. That's that's really my wheelhouse. But I read a lot of fantasy when I was younger. And I always went for the series that featured some sort of indigeneity. They were mm. never clear about it. They were never like, these are Indians. It was just like, oh, and, and it was so funny because, you know, they were always shapeshifters. They were always very mystical and magical. And, you know, even at the time, I remember reading that and being like, eh, some of this is a bit cringy, right? <laughs> but, I, but I was just so thirsty for any sort of representation. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and, and I really, I wanted to write. I really wanted to write. And I did when I was a teenager. And thank goodness most of that stuff is gone because uh, it was terrible. <laughs> uh, and I never wanted to see the light of day. But I always wanted to be a writer. And honestly, I, like it took me even years past pub 
actually being published in any way for me to even call myself that because I had I didn't know what it what it takes mm. you know at what point do you get to call yourself a writer I just sort of assumed that you had to be making a living doing that and then I realized most people don't actually make a living <laughs> writing full-time um, and now the landscape has changed so much just in my lifetime and this is one area that I can say that in because I think for the most part you know, in wider mainstream society, the landscape is very similar mm -hmm. uh, politically, socially to, to what it was uh, in my in my youth and in my parents' youth and my grandparents' youth. Not enough has changed. But mm -hmm. one thing that has changed is that Indigenous peoples have exploded onto the literary landscape and we're everywhere now. Like, mm -hmm. it's, it's not just memoir. It's not just people telling these stereotypical uh, stories about us without including us. Now we're writing mystery, we're writing, you know, um, erotica, we're writing horror, all of it. And it's, there's so much out there that I, I, I can't actually read it all. I know. And what <laughs> wealth is that? I know. It's amazing. I'm in the same boat. I honestly, it's hard for me to even like read a non-Indigenous reader right now because I need, I'm mm. like, there's so many Indigenous authors out there and I just want to soak up all this knowledge. And I feel like each person brings a different, completely outlook, a different outlook to life and a different outlook to their stories. And for you, Sandra, I'm curious to know, like, when did your story begin with uh, your writing and with your journey to get to where you are now? I feel like... As a kid, I was so quiet and shy and just observed. And um, this is actually the kind of the main character in in the the story I'm writing. So I always had so much going on inside my head. And then I was a dancer as well. And so those were like the main types of expression that I was familiar with. Mm. But I was inspired too by like the lack of representation. And um, one of the specific memories I have in school is basically a single paragraph in a social studies text that basically said that all Native people were... Um, died of diseases and, you know, chose to give up their culture. And like, it was very um, shocking and impactful to me. I just kind of remember like my whole body, my heart just sinking into the ground. You know, I just remember this moment. And uh, now with my kids in school, they actually experience some of the same thing. They say, mom, there's little, there's so little about us in our textbooks. And so it's still like, I went to school in the 80s and our curriculum is still from that period. It hasn't changed mm -hmm. since then. And so this has been a huge inspiration. But my, yeah, so my love of storytelling actually came from dancing and specifically as a hoop dancer, it's a storytelling dance. And lots of our Indigenous dances are storytelling dances. And so I kind of got thrown into um, public speaking as a dancer because people wanted to know what it was and my um, personal story. And so I found myself speaking more and more. And as I did this, I found myself writing more and more. And so I have a blog that I've been doing for almost a decade now on Indigenous dance. And my thesis is on Indigenous dance. And yeah, to me, it's hard to kind of separate these different aspects of um, myself, storytelling and movement and um, 
like culture, like everything's kind of connected for me. And I find myself like more and more integrating different types of expression. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think that just goes with like our worldview as Indigenous people, you know, we see it from a holistic perspective, always as interconnected. And for me, you know, I've always been a little hesitant on like the education system, because it's so fragmented in my eyes, and in the way I view it. And so I'm curious to know, like, as Indigenous women, as a Métis woman, how do you remain rooted uh, to your identity within these colonial institutions or within these colonial frameworks? Um, I think it, it's it's really important to uh, one one of the things for me that I've I've come to really value over the years um, is being in my own territory makes a huge difference. Um, you know, I I I didn't leave until uh, gosh, I was like. 20, 24 or something. That was the first time I sort of left, you know, this area. Uh, and I went up north for a bit, but I, I came back down pretty quickly. And then I spent some time in Montreal. And that was the longest I've been outside of my territory. And that's really when I started to realize how much I value some of the, you know, just the way that we are. Mm. Like even just like in this in this area, you know, Métis, Cree people have certain visiting routines and certain um, things that we do, like when you come to visit, I'm going to offer you tea, I'm going to make you food, I'm going to make sure you're comfortable, we're going to do that talk, we're going to catch up before any business takes place. And then being in different territory, in a different Indigenous territory, I find that Haudenosaunee practices are different, you know, and, mm. and, and I didn't even know what mine were until I saw it contrasted with somebody else's. I was like, oh, and it's fine. I love it, too. I respect that. But it's so it's it's such a comfortable thing to be back in an area where you're familiar, um, even even with some of the bad things that happen here, we, you know, just the racism that exists on the prairies. Um at least you know what it looks like. I found being out east, it, it, it's very different and it was jarring and I didn't see it for a while. Um, so yeah, being in your own territory is important, but of course that can't be all that it is. Um, just, I think, uh, you know, when you get older is when you start really interrogating your identity and that's when you become so much more interested in the stories that maybe you weren't listening to uh, too closely when you were younger. And for me, it's those it's those local stories. It's not, mm. I don't want to hear the grand stories of the Métis Nation. I want to hear about Lac St. Anne. I want to hear about, you know, specific things like, you know, little details like, did, you know, were, were people raising pigs back in the 1800s <laughs> in Lac St. Anne? Little things like that uh, that matter to me. And what were the relationships like with Paul Band, Alexis, you know, uh, like the Cree nations uh, and Nakoda nations that surround us? Like, what was that? What were those relationships compared to what they are now? And it's it's that kind of sort of, I call it like auto-ethnography, that learning about ourselves that keeps me rooted and interested. And that's, mm. that's why I write. That's, that's, I want to, I want to participate that in that and make sure that, you know, my kids, my grandkids have some of those stories. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love how you relate um, learning with also being tied to your traditional territory and being tied to the land. Um, I know just the same thing because I believe, are we all from Alberta here? I think we're all from Alberta. Um, and I feel the same way when I go back to Alberta. I feel like, you know what, as much as like I despise this place growing up and actually like yeah. I feel at home. I do feel at home in certain ways um, in Alberta because of actually the land and the traditional territory and and the kinship too, and coming back to being in relation to the community. And so uh, for you, Sandra, you know, I'm curious to know 
how do you keep motivated? Maybe as a writer, I know uh, there's a thing called the writer's block. I don't know if this happens to both of you. Uh, what are things to bring you back up again and to keep you uh, pushing and keep you writing? Well, I'm living in um, Nitsitibi territory, Blackfoot territory, and my husband is Begani, and so my kids are Blackfoot and Cree. Um, I feel like I didn't get to be as connected to community. Uh, my Nookum from Big Stone is actually an unsolved murder from the mm. 60s, and so my mom left the reserve, and so through, you know, like these colonial, like, destruction that we went through some of that disconnect mm. happened and so I've been working with my mom and you know she always taught me like your your culture your belonging like your spirit it's all within you like everything mm. you need is within you so I've um, really come to appreciate that my own inner wisdom inner knowing and mm. like for me it's based in this body body centered practice where everything is not just up in my head like I listen to my body even as a writer but also as a dancer as a mother um, like when it comes to dealing with things finding answers um, that creative intuition is more in the body than in the mind for me and just um, spiritual practices, like spiritual mm. practices for me are huge, um, a daily spiritual practice. And yeah, so and that and connecting with the land. And I don't feel like, like I feel connected to the place I live. And I know my dad and there's other Blackfoot elders who do talk about how interconnected Blackfoot and Cree people have been mm. in the past. And there's been adoptions of like, um, Chief Crowfoot adopted, I want to say Poundmaker, but I don't know if that's true. Um, but yeah, there has been this traditional relationship. My dad has the oral story of how the Cree and the Blackfoot became friends. Mm. And um, yeah, I find I like my son knows that story now. And it like brings me to tears to know that he could grow up and know that um, they don't have to have this mindset of di being disconnected Mm. Um, from you know be between being Bikani and Nehiao so, right, right 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 and my family is like nomadic like I have great grandparents from the Red River area you know we were we did migrate west um, I do have that history as well um, yeah but that's all motivating like learning about this learning about the similarities and differences within cultures mm -hmm. I, I just always try to learn like my family history and different um i'm playing here with my hand in my hands is a necklace i made but it's um wolf willow in blackfoot and it's Yipsy in cree and it's these little seed beads that um, oh my gosh you, that's beautiful you pick them you boil them and then you string them and it's like a spiritual mm -hmm. protection. And so Cree women used to wear this, but even living in Blackfoot territory, they're all over the place and Blackfoot people use them. So that's awesome. Um, yeah. I don't know. I just always try to find the, the common, the connection. And yeah, I think just being curious all the time and, and uh, yeah, like this is a connection with the land that, um, I could still have, even though I'm not in Treaty 8 territory 
at the moment. And that's really special. Like those little those little yeah. things that you bring um, forward, because I live in Vancouver now, which is like a very um, concrete uh, jungle and city. And so I do uh, little rituals every single morning. And I do bring I w- usually wear like a lot of crystals and like certain things to ground me. And it feels like I'm connecting to the land in like different ways. And I love that you bring up like a sense of embodiment. And when I'm embodied, like I feel more in my power. And I feel like that's an, a colonial act in itself as Indigenous women. And so there's been a lot of talk around decolonization. And I'm curious to know, as writers, you know, how would you define the word uh, decolonization? Um, Yeah, how would you define the word decolonization? That's a tough one, because it, um, you know, it's so often as like Eve Tuck and uh, Wayne Yang have said, it's it's often used as a metaphor for things. Mm -hmm. So it's it's really easy to talk about it in the abstract. and, and it, it's also very difficult because the fact is, is that we are colonized. It's, mm. it, it's, it's almost even impossible for us to imagine what our thoughts could be like, what the land would even look like before colonization. Like mm-hmm. it's, it's down to that. Like the landscape has changed so much um, that it's something that our ancestors wouldn't even recognize necessarily. So for me, decolonization is not something that means going back to the past because I don't think that that's on the table. Right. I think that um, it's it's about restoring relationships with with one another and with the land. Um, and and this is something that is so vital for all of creation, not just human beings, but our more than human kin. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, people talk about this uh, climate crisis and are ringing the bells. Oh, now now is time to panic. But you know, indigenous peoples have gone through world-ending events over and over again. I call us a post-apocalyptic people because, mm-hmm. you know, those crisis challenges, those crisis, um, those ecological crises have happened again and again. You know, why wasn't anybody ringing the bell then? Uh, so I, I think mm-hmm. if if this is what it takes for everybody to start thinking that we need a different way to live, then that to me is the beginning of of the the desire to decolonize to create a way that is is uh more just more sustainable and not just for again not just for humans but for all of creation and what that's going to look like um i can't really say uh we we have teachings that can guide us and i think indigenous peoples are really situated to provide some of that knowledge but it's going to take the work of everybody mm-hmm. uh, and it's the work of generations so I know that's not a that's not a trite or simple answer, um, and it leaves a lot of questions, more questions than answers. But that's kind of where I'm at with it. Well, and I think it's also like um, it takes a dismantling and a destruction of like the old paradigms and like the old timelines that we're so used to abiding by. And I feel like everyone is just kind of so comfortable with this. And I feel like, Mm -hmm. I don't know, for me, I also feel like I have cognitive dissonance and I almost have a sense of numbness. Like when I see about climate change or what's happening in the world it's like my survival instincts as an indigenous person kicks in and I like try to numb myself out try to act like it doesn't exist but really these are the conversations that we need to be having now because we're in a critical moment in time and it's like if Mm -hmm. we don't start decolonizing aspects of our lives what are what are our children going to look forward to and so I'm curious for you Sandra um, does decolonization mean the same thing or what how would you define that in your own words I agree that it's like hugely complex and I use decolonizing methodologies in my thesis and one of the 
books was Linda Tuhui Smith. And she talks about like this idea of like problematizing the Indian, like Indians as always the problem. And so mm. that in itself is like a huge thing, you know, to do. Um, when me and Chelsea were meeting and talking about like, she wanted me to do like the, cause I'm not trained in writing. Um, but she wanted me to do a character sketch and I was like avoiding it. I didn't really understand. And so what <laughs> I did is I took a medicine wheel and I did that for my character. So, um, instead of like, mm. what do they eat or what, you know, like, I don't really know about the Western way, but this made sense to me spiritually, culturally, who are they mm. physically? What are they like diet, mm. fitness, environment? Um, where, you know, what is their home, physical home life like? And then emotionally, what are they like? Mentally, are they, what are they like? And so I used, to me, that was decolonizing. I, I decolonized a little bit of the process of writing by doing it in a way that was holistic and made sense to me. And I, um, I, I was more interested and motivated to do it that way because I didn't want to learn a Western way because I didn't really understand and it didn't for whatever reason it didn't appeal to me and so mm. like that is just a tiny example of like and so if you think about that we have to do that to everything like that's like lifetimes of <laughs> generations <laughs> of work ahead of us which is also exciting to me yeah, I want to jump in on that because yes, I, I loved I loved it when Sandra did that. And one of the things I've been really resistant to as a writer, so I've never I've never trained. I've never taken writing courses and this and that. And I feel, you know, I remember there was a period of time when I felt like I didn't understand anything because a lot of the stuff I was reading had all these biblical illusions. And I was mm. I was raised um, in a household, even though we come from a very Catholic um, community, I was raised in a household that was very like, no, we're not going to, we're not doing that. We're not passing that on to you. So I, I grew up very ignorant of Christianity and these things. And so one of the things that uh, has worked for me somehow, even though everybody said it wouldn't, is that I haven't had to, I haven't learned certain things and then had to unlearn them. Um, you know, so like, and, and maybe, you know, I'm not saying these things don't have value, but I think there's something to be said for not expecting Indigenous peoples to learn a Western paradigm and, and like Western conventions for, for our, our literature and then decolonize. And I'm putting scare quotes here, decolonize by like doing it differently. Right. What if we just use our embedded knowledges already and do it the way that we already know? Mm -hmm. Why go through that? Why go through that process? And then like, you know, speak back to it or decolonize it. Like I don't, it's not on us to change the way that Western literature is. Let Western literature be Western literature, but indigenous peoples have our own literatures, our own genres. And even for, even if you haven't been raised um, with, you know, full connection into that, even if you don't know all your sacred stories and you don't know all of this, you have some of it, some of it mm. has been passed on to you. And so why not access that and do things, as Sandra said, in the way that makes sense? To me, that is more decolonizing than sort of like undoing what what you've been, you know, forced to learn. And I and yeah. I want more space like that for our our people. Like we shouldn't have to jump through these hoops. And we 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 absolutely do. We shouldn't have to be forced to go through the institutions and gain a recognition in certain ways. 
Um, we do it because we have to, but let's let's also value the knowledges that our communities have. Mm-hmm. That you got me thinking of like so many things during that. Uh, one is even the way we look at success. Cause like mm-hmm. for me, it's like, we have to abide by certain colonial standards to reach a certain level of like recognition and being seen by the world. But really like, why do we have to abide by that? Like what success means to me may be completely something different. Um, And so I love that you bring up like decolonizing. We're already, we already decolonized. Like if we're indigenous, like we have it within our bloodline. And so I'm curious to know, like, what would your advice be for the younger generation of writers out there um, that maybe are, yeah, just what would your advice be for younger uh, writers, the younger Um, generation? Yeah. I think a part of it is to, is, there, there comes a moment in your life um, that I, that I want every everybody to experience, every Indigenous youth to experience, where you realize that your experiences and your knowledge and your community is valid. Um, I remember, I remember, you know, thinking about the way that we spoke when I grew up. It was always considered, you know, it, it's both the accent and the particular way that we spoke English that was considered low class. And when I started learning Cree and understood the syntax of Cree and uh, the way that Cree sounds and also um, the words that people were using and realized, oh, wait, this is just this is this is English through a Cree lens. And that is amazing Mm. and beautiful and rich. Um, And I stopped thinking of those things as low class and something to separate yourself from. So your experiences from wherever you're from, whether you're urban native, whether you're from, you know, you're from a rural or northern community, all of that is legitimate and and valuable. And when you share that reality, you're encouraging other people that come from those places to also understand that their experiences are beautiful and valid and real. Um, And it's it's so empowering. So I just want people to, to be real and and. I think it's more possible now that we don't have to change our stories to be legible to the mainstream. We can we can write stories for one another. Mm. And if if the mainstream wants to come along on that train with us, great. They're going to learn something too. But we, we don't have to pander um, because the fact is, is mm-hmm. that Indigenous peoples are so incredibly diverse and uh, just even within nations. And so whatever experience you come from you're you have something valuable to share and and i want to hear those authentic voices and not have them uh crushed or changed or altered or distorted and that's that's mm-hmm. really where i think programs like this come in we have to we have to be there to support one another and say yes you go you go ahead and say it that way because that's that's how people really talk that's how people really act you know yeah, even decolonizing our perception of language and the English, the mm. English language, which is so limiting in itself. Um, Sandra, do you have any advice for the younger generation of writers out there? I think I would say just that their voice is really important. I I feel like a lot of my childhood was just. I was just so quiet. I never spoke up and uh, it took me a long, long time to find my voice and learn how to use my voice. And I wish, um, I wish that more youth did learn how to speak up. I mean, it's super, when you're marginalized culturally, spiritually, sometimes, you know, with your gender, like I know how intimidating it is. So um, yeah their voice is important and people want to listen. Um, There's people that want to listen and want to hear them. So, Mm -hmm. um, you know, sometimes there is a quote that I heard recently that your 
um, for I think it was for writers, but your words might be the exact shape of somebody else's wound, you know, mm. so there's people that need to hear your voice and your words. Mm-hmm. I love that. And I love that uh, listeners have uh, people like you to be inspired by and to read your work. And I know we're coming up close here. If you just want to tell listeners how to support your work, where to follow you, thank you so much for sharing your wisdom, your knowledge and your expertise. And I look forward to reading more of your beautiful work. Uh, I mean, look for Sandra's work when it's published, because I <laughs> it, it is excellent stuff excellent and i'm very very excited to just i I swear to god when it gets out there i'm gonna go to the bookstore and just like take pictures take (laughs) selfies with sandra's work i'm just so excited (laughs) to see it so yeah and same with everybody who's uh involved in this in this project and um and that's the thing is like everything that i'm seeing is so wonderful and i can't wait to see other people with it in their hands and there are so many more stories like that so i don't really care about people following me i just want I want people to tell their stories. I want to support everybody. Yeah, look out for like, um, hopefully a bookshelf near you sometime. (laughs) (laughs) I'm learning that this process takes a long time. Um, So yeah, yeah, in the future. (laughs) And there is time, there's time. Yeah, there, there is time. <laughs> well, we'll be the first ones uh, lining up to read it and to get it and to grab it. And I will make sure to post on my stories where you can also purchase once it's time. Uh, thank you so much, Chelsea and Sandra. I look forward to learning more about your stories and reading them. Thank you. Hi, hi. Hi, hi. Nice Thank you. I hope you enjoyed today's episode and I would love your feedback. Follow me on Instagram at Shayla0h at matriarch.movement. And don't forget to subscribe on the pod platform of your choice and review and rate where possible. I'll be back in a week. Hi, hi. Thank you so much for tuning in. Thank you so much for listening to a podcast by The Brand is Female. I'm Ava Hartling, and this episode was produced by our team. Sound engineering by Isabel Morris. Research and production support, Claire Miglionico. Marketing and digital growth, Kayla Gillis. And partnerships, Natalie Hope.